0: Section 6 of Sketches of the Fair Sex in All Parts of the World This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Bologna Times Sketches of the Fair Sex in All Parts of the World by Anonymous Great Enterprises of Women in the Times of Chivalry The times and the manners of chivalry, by bringing great enterprises, bold adventurers, and extravagant heroism into fashion, inspired the women with the same taste. The two sexes always imitate each other. Their manners and their minds are refined or corrupted, invigorated or dissolved together. The women, in consequence of the prevailing passion, were now seen in the middle of camps and of armies. They quitted the soft and tender inclinations, and the delicate offices of their own sex, for the courage and the foilsome occupations of ours. During the crusades, animated by the double enthusiasm of religion and of valour, they often performed the most romantic exploits. They obtained indulgences on the field of battle, and died with arms in their hands by the side of their lovers, or of their husbands. In Europe, the women attacked and defended fortifications, princesses commanded their armies, and obtained victories. Such was the celebrated Joan de Montfort, disputing for her duchy of Bretagne, and engaging the enemy herself. Such was the still more celebrated Margaret of Anjou, Queen of England and wife of Henry the Sixth. She was active and intrepid, a general and a soldier. Her genius for a long time supported her feeble husband, taught him to conquer, replaced him upon the throne, twice relieved him from prison, and though oppressed by fortune and by rebels, she did not yield till she had decided in person twelve battles. The warlike spirit among the women, consistent with ages of barbarism, when everything is impetuous, because nothing is fixed, and when all excess is the excess of force, continued in Europe upwards of four hundred years, showing itself from time to time, and always in the middle of convulsions, or on the eve of great revolutions. But there were eras and countries in which that spirit appeared with particular lustre. Such were the displays it made in the fifteenth and sixteenth centuries in Hungary, and in the islands of the archipelago and the Mediterranean, when they were invaded by the Turks. Everything conspired to animate the women of those countries with an exalted courage, the prevailing spirit of the foregoing ages, the terror which the name of the Turks inspired, the still more dreadful apprehensions of an unknown enemy, the difference of dress, which has a stronger effect than is commonly supposed on the imagination of a people, the difference of religion, which produced a kind of sacred horror, the striking difference of manners, and, above all, the confinement of the female sex, which presented to the women of Europe nothing but the frightful ideas of servitude and a master, the groans of honour, the tears of beauty in the embrace of barbarism, and the double tyranny of love and pride. The contemplation of these objects, accordingly, roused in the hearts of the women a resolute courage to defend themselves, nay, sometimes even a courage of enthusiasm which hurled itself against the enemy. That courage, too, was augmented by the promises of a religion which offered eternal happiness in exchange for the sufferings of a moment. It is not therefore surprising that when three beautiful women of the isle of cyprus were led prisoners to selim to be secluded in the seraglio one of them preferring death to such a condition conceived the project of setting fire to the magazine and after having communicated her design to the rest put it in execution the year following a city of cyprus being besieged by the turks the women ran in crowds, mingling themselves with the soldiers, and, fighting gallantly in the breach, were the means of saving their country. Under Mahomet, too, a girl of the Isle of Lemnos, armed with the sword and shield of her father, who had fallen in battle, opposed the Turks, when they had forced a gate, and chased them to the shore. In the two celebrated sieges of Rhodes and Malta, The women, seconding the zeal of the knights, discovered upon all occasions the greatest intrepidity not only that impetuous and temporary impulse that despises death, but that cool and deliberate fortitude which can support the continued hardships, the toils, and the miseries of war. Other Particulars Respecting Females During the Age of Chivalry When a man had said anything that reflected dishonor on a woman, or accused her of a crime, she was not obliged to fight him to prove her innocence. The combat would have been unequal, but she might choose a champion to fight in her cause, or expose himself to the horrid trial, in order to clear her reputation. Such champions were generally selected from her lovers or friends. But if she fixed upon any other so high was the spirit of martial glory, and so eager the thirst of defending the weak and helpless sex, that we meet with no instance of a champion ever having refused to fight for, or undergo whatever custom required, in defence of the lady who had honoured him with the appointment. To the motives already mentioned we may add another. He who had refused must inevitably have been branded with the name of coward, and so despicable was the condition of a coward in those times of general heroism, that death itself appeared the more preferable choice. Nay, such was the rage of fighting for women, that it became customary for those who could not be honoured with the decision of their real quarrels, to create fictitious ones concerning them, in order to create also a necessity of fighting." nor was fighting for the ladies confined to single combatants. Crowds of gallants entered the lists against each other. Even kings called out their subjects to shew their love for their mistresses by cutting the throats of their neighbors, who had not in the least offended. In the fourteenth century, when the Countess of Blois and the widow of Montfort were at war against each other, a conference was agreed to. On pretense of settling a peace but in reality to appoint a combat instead of negotiating they soon challenged each other and beaumanoir who was at the head of the britons publicly declared that they fought for no other motive than to see by the victory who had the fairest mistress in the fifteenth century we find an anecdote of this kind still more extraordinary john duke de Bourbonois, published a declaration that he would go over to England with sixteen knights, and there fight it out in order to avoid idleness, and merit the good graces of his mistress. James Fourth of Scotland, having, in all tournaments, professed himself knight to Queen Anne of France, she summoned him to prove himself her true and valorous champion by taking the field in her defence, against his brother-in-law, Henry VIII of England he obeyed the romantic mandate and the two nations bled to feed the vanity of a woman warriors when ready to engage invoked the aid of their mistresses as poets do that of the muses if they fought valiantly it reflected honour on the dulcineas they adored but if they turned their backs on their enemies the poor ladies were dishonoured for ever Love was at that time the most prevailing motive to fighting. The famous Gaston de Foix, who commanded the French troops at the Battle of Ravenna, took advantage of this foible of his army. He rode from rank to rank, calling his officers by name, and even some of his private men, recommending to them their country, their honor, and, above all, to shew what they could do for their mistresses. The women of those ages, the reader may imagine, were certainly more completely happy than in any other period of the world. This, however, was not in reality the case. Custom, which governs all things with the most absolute sway, had, through a long succession of years, given her sanction to such combats as were undertaken, either to defend the innocence, or display the beauty of women, custom therefore either obliged a man to fight for a woman who desired him or marked the refusal with infamy and disgrace but custom did not oblige him in every other part of his conduct to behave to this woman or to the sex in general with that respect and politeness which have happily distinguished the character of more modern times the same man who would have encountered giants or gigantic difficulties when a lady was in the case, had but little idea of adding to her happiness by supplying her with the comforts and elegancies of life, and had she asked him to stoop and ease her of a part of that domestic slavery which, almost in every country, falls to the lot of women, he would have thought himself quite affronted. But besides, men had nothing else in those ages, than that kind of romantic gallantry to recommend them. Ignorant of letters, arts, and sciences, and everything that refines human nature, they were, in everything where gallantry was not concerned, rough and unpolished in their manners and behaviour. Their time was spent in drinking, war, gallantry, and idleness. In their hours of relaxation, they were but little in company with their women, and when they were, the indelicacies of the carousal, or the cruelties of the field, were almost the only subjects they had to talk of. From the subversion of the Roman Empire to the fourteenth or fifteenth century, women spent most of their time alone. They were almost entire strangers to the joys of social life. They seldom went abroad, but to the spectators of such public diversions and amusements as the fashion of the times countenanced, Francis I., was the first monarch who introduced them on public days to court before his time nothing was to be seen at any of the courts of europe but long-bearded politicians plotting the destruction of the rights and liberties of mankind and warriors clad in complete armour ready to put their plots in execution in the eighth century so slavish was the condition of women on the one hand and so much was beauty coveted on the other, that, for about two hundred years, the kings of Austria were obliged to pay a tribute to the Moors of one hundred beautiful virgins per annum. In the thirteenth and fourteenth centuries elegance had scarcely any existence, and even cleanliness was hardly considered as laudable. The use of linen was not known, and the most delicate of the fair sex were woollen shifts. In the time of Henry the Eighth, the peers of the realm carried their wives behind them on horseback when they went to London, and in the same manner took them back to their country seats, with hoods of waxed linen over their heads, and wrapped in mantles of cloth to secure them from the cold. There was one misfortune of a singular nature to which women were liable in those days, they were in perpetual danger of being accused of witchcraft and suffering all the cruelties and indignities of a mob instigated by superstition and directed by enthusiasm or of being condemned by laws which were at once a disgrace to humanity and to sense even the bloom of youth and beauty could not secure them from torture and from death But when age and wrinkles attacked a woman, if anything uncommon happened in her neighborhood, she was almost sure of atoning with her life for a crime it was impossible for her to commit. Section six.